the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must take place quickly. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So who is the author of the book of the Revelation? The holy apostle and evangelist John, as we see it recorded here, to ensure that this book is not fraudulent or forged, but genuine, a genuine work of John the Evangelist. This is not of small significance, but of great significance, because if that's the case, then we must pay great attention to it, and in reality, the church has accepted this as the work of John the Evangelist, and it honored it by placing it in the canonical books of the New Testament, and rightly so. It is a book of the Holy Bible, the Holy Scripture. We must add that the church has been extremely cautious in this respect. Uh, works of the apostolic fathers or successors to the apostles, such as Barnabas, for example, his epistles or those of other apostolic fathers were not placed in the canon of the New Testament. They are not material of the New Testament. The church exercised extreme caution and allowed many years to pass by before including some of the books in the canon of the New Testament or books of the first order which were written by the hand of living eyewitnesses of the word as origin says. Eyewitnesses who saw, heard, and touched God the word who incarnated. So then the author of the book of the Revelation is John. The word servant is commonly used by the apostles as they write their epistles. But here we have a simple recording of the name of John, simply John, without titles such as the disciple of Christ or the apostle of Christ. The absence of these titles shows that the receivers and the readers of his book were very well known to him. They were very close to him. It is also obvious that the book of the Revelation is given to the church from God the Father, through Jesus Christ, through the angel, through John, to the church. So what we have here is an alive chain of paradosis, or teaching tradition. Paradosi, in Greek, means tradition. It means literally means to pass down. To have one person deliver and another person receive. So God the Father gives to the Son incarnate, not God the Word, but to Jesus Christ, to God incarnate. Jesus Christ gives to the angel, the angel gives to John, and John passes it to the church. So what we have here is the wonder of the alive tradition or paradosi and this is precisely why this alive tradition along with the holy scripture make up the basis or the foundation of the church as we know it is holy tradition that preserved the authenticity and validity of the holy scriptures holy tradition told us which book is genuine or fraudulent 
I say this to be heard by those who discard and disregard the tradition of the church, whether Protestant or Orthodox, who have been heavily influenced by the non-Orthodox. And they disregard the tradition of the church. The key, and we will mention this over and over again, the key to the Orthodox interpretation of the book of the Revelation is to be found in the shelves of holy tradition. If you don't take a hold of this key that holy tradition has given you, then you will never interpret and see the true meaning of the scripture. This is why the Protestants interpret the scriptures every which way, with the end result being the deterioration of their faith to thousands of pieces. They have no idea what they believe today, what they believed yesterday, and what they would be believing tomorrow. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bears record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. So John saw, he saw visions, he saw images and symbols. He saw these things, he did not imagine them, or did he not produce them, or daydream them, but he actually saw them. These are real accounts of what he actually saw. When Christ tells him, write the things that you see, write what you hear, in one specific instance, he tells him, do not write these things, these are just for you. Seal this information. But all the other things, do write them. So we can see very clearly that the Holy Apostle, with much simplicity, will record these things that he saw. He will not add or subtract. And what's true and characteristic of a genuine script is when it is simple and not very articulate. It is usually uh, the fraudulent writings that need to be articulate and very well edited because their purpose is to impress, to catch the attention, to impress the reader. However, the true book that records true things, real things from God, there's no need to be articulate or to have any special fanfare. There's no need to impress. The truth is the truth. So John writes simply what he saw, nothing more, nothing less. If he leaves something out, he's guilty, and he will answer to God. If he writes something more, then he is equally guilty, no more and no less. Not to mention that John finishes this book with this, to the person that adds anything to the words of this prophecy. God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away, God will take away from him his share in his kingdom. In other words, this person will not enter the kingdom of God. So if the evangelist himself writes this about anyone else who would attempt to alter this book, how much more he must be careful. So in reality, John wrote exactly what he saw and what he heard. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. 
this introductory outline, which we spoke about at an earlier session, closes with this beatitude, this blessing heaped upon those who study, hear, and apply the words of this book and generally the word of God. This beatitude is the first of the seven separate beatitudes that we will find in the book of the Revelation. And some of you may remember about 15 years ago when we did an entire interpretation on these seven beatitudes of this book. This is our third attempt to delve in this book. The first time we worked with the seven beatitudes about 10 years ago, we covered the three first chapters of the book of the Revelation. And now, God willing, we will try to examine this entire book very closely. So blessed is he that reads and they that hear. He that reads, singular. They that hear, plural. So one reads and many hear. Where was this reading and hearing taking place? Where else but the church? It was used in public worship, much like the gospel and the epistles of the apostles. This is how the book of the Revelation was utilized in the early church. This is why it says that he that reads and they that hear. And the purpose of the use of this book in public worship was to strengthen, to console the faithful, but also to awaken those that were slipping and to inform them about the content of this book. St. Justin, in the second century, actually the middle of the second century, records for us a very beautiful picture about the reading of the epistle and the gospel in public worship. He writes in one of his first apologetic homilies. He refers to he that reads and those that hear. And on that day called the day of the sun, or Sunday. It was called Sunday from the idolaters, and this name was preserved in the Latin languages until this day. So on Sunday, all those that lived in the cities or the country, they congregate, they meet at one place, and one reads memoirs of the apostles. These are the Gospels, or the writings of the prophets. And after the reader stops, so here we can see that the church was following this instruction of St. John, or Christ rather. We see it very clearly. So after the reader would stop, the proistamenos, the bishop, the one in charge, would begin to interpret, to preach, and explain the material that was read so the entire congregation would be able to apply these teachings in their daily lives. As you can see, we do the same thing here. We keep reading the verses of the book of the Revelation over and over again. The subject must be read. We read it. We read it in the original Greek. Then we translate it in our everyday language. And then we must interpret it. And this is the way, this is how we stay in tune with the Holy Script. So our ear must get used to it, to be familiar to us and not foreign. It is necessary to hear sermons that motivate towards the imitation of good things. But our church 
having to deal with a number of false interpretations circulated by the heretics, for example, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, a heresy that still goes on today. This heresy brought forth havoc in the church. And even in the days of St. John, John was still alive, and this book was being grossly misinterpreted. And the first who interpreted falsely was Gerinthos, a child of Gnosticism. He was not even a Christian. He mixed all religions together, along with some Christianity, and he started talking about the 1,000 year of the kingdom of Christ. So St. John the Apostle was quite concerned about these things, and uh, something from our tradition, it is said that at some point, St. John was in Ephesus, and he visited a public bathhouse where someone told him that Gerinthus was also inside. His response, let's leave quickly before the roof of the place collapses and kills all of us because of the presence of the heretic. So the apostles, as long as they were alive, they were not only correct in these misinterpretations, but they were pre-warning and spelling out these things to the Christians. St. Paul, for instance, says, After I leave, I know that many will misinterpret my words. St. Peter actually comes to defend St. Paul when he writes in his epistle. He says, They are unstable and ignorant people that distort the words of St. Paul as they do other scripture to their own destruction. Didn't Hymenaeus and Philetus distort the teaching of St. Paul about the resurrection of the dead? And weren't they teaching that the resurrection already took place? My friends, don't tell me that the authors of the Holy Scriptures are at fault. No, what's responsible here is people's egotism. Why? Because simply, my friend, you want to interpret, that's fine, but you must have the key. What is the key? I told you, the tradition of the church. This is how the church interprets. Now, if you want to interpret the way you want, due to your demonic pride, then you are sure to fail. You will become a heretic, and heresy is nothing else but the logical interpretation of dogma. When I attempt to interpret things that cannot be interpreted with logic and intellectuality, when I try to interpret a deep mystery by my mere mind and my intellect, then I become a heretic. So when I attempt to explain or interpret the teaching of the church by logical methods and logical means, then I automatically find myself in the area of heresy. So the holy writers are not to blame, but the pride and egotism as selfishness of some people inside the church. Unfortunately, so much of this goes on today, especially here in this country. So a number of people that go outside of the church, they find a few truths about the faith, and then they come in the church, 
to resurrect the church. And this is audacity. The church is the perfect body of Christ. The church has been alive for 2,000 years. The Spirit of God is in the church. The church does not have the need for anyone to come and resurrect it. We all need the church to resurrect us. But where is humility today? That's what we lack, humility. However, the church, due to all these inconsistencies and situations, the church in the East especially, at least in the East, was forced to discontinue the use of the book of the Revelation in the area of worship. This did not take place in the West, only in the East. There were no heresies in the West in this area. When we mean West, we're talking about Rome and the Church of Rome before 1054. So the book is authentic and the church has it included in the canon of the New Testament. We pray that during a true Orthodox Synod, the church may reconsider and readmit this book of the Revelation in the area of worship so it can be preached by the pulpit, much like the epistles of St. Paul and the rest of the apostles. Yes, we can pray for this. Uh, this, of course, does not hinder anyone from studying and preaching from the book of the Revelation or to use verses from this book to help a speaker of the word of God to teach a certain subject. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear and keep those things. These three that St. John mentions here remind us the words of the Lord. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The Lord said this when a lady out of the crowd shouted out, Blessed is the womb that held you and the breast that gave you milk. And he said, Certainly blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it or live by it. These three verbs, he that reads, those that hear, and keep the words, these verbs are stated in the present tense, which suggests this to go on continually and without ceasing. I must always read, I must always hear, and I must always keep the word of God. It doesn't say those that heard, but those that hear. Don't say, I heard some sermons, I went to a few classes, I had enough, why should I go again? No, the word of God here is direct. He that reads, always. Those that hear, always. And those that keep the word of God, always. But let's express a few thoughts on this threefold combination of the reading, the hearing, and the keeping of the Word of God. And about reading, in order to understand the Word of God, we must be in God. Otherwise, we cannot understand the Word of God. And on, on this saying, Diadochos Potikis says, There is nothing more poor 
there's no worse poverty to be speaking about God while being outside and away from God. This, my friends, can be seen very clearly in the case of some people who do not live a spiritual life, but they speak about spiritual matters. They get caught up, they get exposed, they make uh, some mistakes, and are often quite unrealistic. They try to answer some matters, but by their own thinking. They are not in God, and they do not have a spiritual life. The person who does not live a spiritual life cannot talk about matters of God. It is not possible. And he can never understand what the Word of God writes because the understanding of the Word of God is not simply academic or philological. Someone can be a Ph.D., has a, can be a doctor of divinity and have no understanding of the Word of God. The understanding of the Word of God has a different dimension. I'm not saying that philological or some knowledge of literature or grammar is not helpful. All these elements do help. But these elements are not enough. You cannot say that I have a degree in literature, so I will have no problem understanding the Bible. You will not understand anything. The spirit of the scriptures will be elusive to you. You will be left with the letter. The existence of a liturgical atmosphere is also necessary, a prerequisite in order to study and understand the Word of God. What does that mean? It means that the reading or the hearing of the Word of God cannot be reduced to some living rooms or become an academic matter. We will explain. There's a tendency, and this tendency always existed, for some people to discuss highly theological matters, but in a living room, with all the known condiments of the living room, along with the socializing jokes and funnies, and the discussions are simply academic. Again, the discussion can be highly theological. However, it doesn't touch the word with capital W, the Word of God. These discussions stay at the swaddling clothes the ones that the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, dressed him after his birth. This is how far these people get. They cannot touch the Word of God. Never. So it is not enough just to talk about the Bible. When I do it outside of the liturgical environment and outside of the blessing of the church, I do not benefit. This is why the Word of God must be connected with the liturgical space. Simply put, the sermon must take place in the church. We are not saying that it is forbidden to be heard somewhere else, like the street or the mountain, that's fine, but it must be connected with the liturgical place. After the divine liturgy, for instance, or after a vesper service, the Word of God during or after these services, has a different effect in the hearts of the people. In the very least, when, I, when we do a study of the Word of God, 
a priest must be present or have the blessing of the priest. What is also needed is internal and external quiet time for someone to understand the Word of God. St. Gregory the theologian says, the divine can be experienced in a state of quiet. You need quiet stillness to feel and understand God inside you. This stillness is mostly internal, but also external. You need to have peace in your heart. We will not stop reading the Word of God when we have turmoil. We need to gain our peace, but in order to delve into the deep things of God, in order to submerge, we need to have inner peace and stillness. All our daily cares must come to a halt, must be put on hold. Also, when we study the Word of God, we must feel that it is for us and not for the others. We must see our own shortcomings and not those of the others. St. Isaac the Syrian says of this, The man of humble heart, when he studies the Holy Scriptures, never says, This is for that person. This is good advice for other people. No, the Word of God is speaking to me. Sometimes as we speak the Word of God here, some of you may think, is the speaker talking about me? Maybe he, he overheard something about my private life. The speaker does not know anything, I assure you. The Word of God is directed by God himself. Sure, I have prepared myself, but what has been prepared and now being expressed is under the direction of God himself in its depth. So his word can touch in a special way the different types of hearts. The word is one, but it touches each person differently. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, The water that falls on the plant is all the same, the same water for all flowers. But for one flower, the water makes a red flower. For the other, it becomes a white color. For the third, a yellow flower, and so on. All caused by the same water. In the same way, the Word of God touches the heart of each listener according to his needs. The sincere listener, and I underline this, the sincere listener. We do not single out the troubles of a listener and try to base our talk on that, as some naive listeners may think. Again, we need to have humility, which we lack. When we think, I wish so and so should be here to hear this, it would, it would be so helpful for them. No, this shows pride. Again, this is a, ma a matter of pride when we think that others need to hear this. No, I must say, this is for me, only for me, and I need to improve myself. Finally, we need to begin our study or reading with prayer. St. Syrian says, Do not try to come in touch with the mysteries of God and the Word of God without prayer. So don't open the Holy Scripture. Don't start reading without prayer, asking God for His help. And while praying, say, Lord, allow me to sense, let me sense the power of Your words, the power that exists in Your words. You must consider prayer as the key for you to understand the deeper meaning of the scriptures. But let's say a couple words about the hearing of the Word of God. 
Many people, especially years ago, were not able to read. A few people knew how to read. Today, the opposite is true. Almost everyone can read. So in the past, the basic source of the knowledge leading to the truths of God was the sense of hearing, the ear. People could not read. However, even today, the hearing of the word is very basic for all people because the word is offered through a living tongue. And much like the word of God, it is alive. So when the word of God is heard through a living tongue, this makes it especially graceful. The word of God, in this case, can be presented with the personal experiences of the speaker. And this can be a source of courage to the listeners as far as the application of the word of God goes. It is not the same if you hear it on the radio or if you read it in a book. It is something very different. This is why we go to hear the Word of God and we don't rely on reading only. Reading does not replace the spoken Word. And the hearing of the spoken Word does not replace reading. These are two parallel things and equally important. But I must say that when we hear the Word of God, we do so in numbers. See how many people are present here. So the Word of God is connected with the presence and vision of other people. In other words, it is connected with the church. And this is very important to have the Word of God be heard in the church. Very beneficial, of great value. On the other hand, if I sit by myself listening to a cassette, it's like eating canned food, according to the Holy One of Florida, Metropolitan Augustinus Candiotis. And the canned, the canned word of God does not have the same freshness as the live participation. It is useful. I will listen to the cassette. I will read the book. But I will also make it a point to go and hear the live, the living word of God to get together with my other brothers and sisters in Christ, the other faithful, so I can become a presence and show forth the church, not only in its liturgical worship, but also in the hearing of the Word of God. Finally, as far as the application of the, of the Word of God is concerned, the statement of the Holy Evangelist, and keep those things which are written therein, this expresses to us that the Word of God must be applied. We must live it, but we need to live it in its entirety. Let's not pick and choose. Let's not say that we will do this, but not that. For the time is at hand. The time is at hand. Does this mean anything to us? I will tell you something from my personal life that pertains to this. This goes back in the early 40s during the horrible German occupation, or siege rather. We were in school, three children at each desk, and we were taking our final exams. The classroom was packed, it was full. Certainly not a bad deal for the lazy students. My classmates did not study, and we were being examined on uh, ancient Greek modern Greek and mathematics. My classmates decided not to study ancient Greek, but I did, and I sat towards the back of the class. 
So I started helping the three students in back of me, the three in front of me, and the two on either side. So I was helping a dozen of students. By trying to help all these kids, checking to see if they wrote things correctly. By the way, there was no supervision in the class at all, no, no teacher. So I was not writing. I was helping the others fill in their tests. Suddenly the teacher comes in and announces, boys, you must hand in your papers in five minutes. I don't know how many of you went through something similar to this in your school years, but I cannot describe to you how I felt. I started perspiring, getting red as a tomato from embarrassment. I felt paralyzed, and I screamed without thinking, not yet, Mr. Teacher. My paper was still blank. The other students were handing in their paper, and even though I was the only one that studied, I wrote nothing, and I was crawling in the office like a little puppy to beg the teacher to pass me. This is the feeling that a man gets when he realizes that his time is up. It is a terrible feeling. St. Isaac the Syrian says that if you did not live the right life, when you see that your time of death is at hand, you will panic. Also, when someone truly allows this feeling to enter his inner being, that time is at hand, then whenever he reads this phrase in the scripture, he cannot help but feel what I described in my school years. But this phrase, for the time is at hand, is of the same meaning of the earlier words of this chapter. Those things which must take place quickly. As you remember, we analyzed this earlier, but what is characteristic is that this statement is repeated only a few verses later, which accentuates that the end is galloping. The end is around the corner. What end? The time of the prophecy, or the fulfillment of the word of the prophecy. So blessed is he who reads and they that hear the words of the prophecy, because the time will not be long. There's also an ecclesiastical action that has impressed me a great deal. I don't know if this feeling of mine is totally accurate, but I will share it with you. Up to the 15th century, the faithful that shed their blood for the faith were simply called saints or martyrs, and this was up to the 15th century. After the 15th century, the martyrs are now called new. So we have the new martyrs. Historically, we have some big events that divide sections of history, and more specifically, in this case, after the fall of Constantinople, at 1453, close to 1500, we have this new phenomenon, this new term calling the martyrs after the fall neo-martyrs. And those that finish their life peacefully, they also bear the new term new saint. And we have Saint Nectarius, the newly manifested saint, uh, the Saint Nicodemus the New, or Saint Constantine the New, this characteristic of the new martyr, or newly manifest, 
it gives the feeling of the placement of a boundary. In other words, let's say that we have the arrival of a new historical time, let's say 500 years from now. How is the church supposed to classify the martyrs and saints, let's say 500 years from now? The new new martyrs or the super new martyrs? That doesn't make sense. Do you know what that means? Do you know what this means? When the church talks about new, it means that we had the old and now the new. And after the new, there will be no newer ones. They are all will be called new, and that's all. Again, do we know what's happening here? I'm afraid that in the Catholic conscience of the church, there is a smoldering feeling, the feeling that the end is near. This is why the church uses the term new for her saints. We have nothing else to add to this term new. The church always had her eyes on the end, but for a time it called her elite saints or martyrs. In our days, and since the 15th century, she uses the term new. After this introductory outline, what follows now is the preface of the entire book, which takes place between verses 4 until 8. And I will read these verses. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from God, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. Everyone who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. This, my friends, is the preface of the book of the Revelation. Up to this point, we had the introductory outline. In this preface, which is extremely important and most theological, what is made obvious is the epistle or letter character of the book. This book is a letter, and if you will, the gospel according to Luke is a letter. Doesn't it look right the beginning to the most excellent Theophilus? I sent you this information. The word letter is not mentioned, but I sent you this script so you can learn the truth of our faith. So it is presented in the form of an epistle or a letter. The same holds true for the book of the Revelation. It has the dimension of an epistle. And not only because of the letter written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but this holds true for the entire book. And the ancient form of the epistle is maintained. In other words, the author is announced. John is the author. 
So John is the author, the receivers who are the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then we have the greeting, grace, and peace to you from God the Father, and so on. And then we have the doxology. To him belongs the power and the glory unto the ages of ages. Amen. So the book of the Revelation is a letter. And we pray that someday God allows it to be read as an apostolic reading in the church. So John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. John, the sender of the letter, to the seven churches, the receivers of this letter. Here again, the name of the author John is placed at the beginning of the sentence. And this will be done again in verse 9. The name bears no titles, no last name, which shows that the intended readers of this letter know John quite well. Which are the seven churches mentioned in the book of the Revelation? Which are the seven churches that our Lord asks that a special letter be sent to each one of them? We have the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and now these are historical churches, real churches, not noetic or symbolic. Churches, real churches. So we have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theodira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are all cities of Asia Minor, old ancient cities, lively cities with strong Christian population. They became episcopates which shows a strong church presence. And to these seven churches, now Christ speaks to through the book of the Revelation with a special message for each one of these churches. Someone may ask, now why is Christ addressing only these seven churches? Christ tells John and to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, or to the angel of Smyrna. Why these seven churches and not to the church of Jerusalem or Corinth or Rome or Alexandria? These last ones were bigger and most important churches. Only Ephesus could compare with the grandeur and uh, you know, the, uh, the title of Rome, let's say, or Jerusalem or Antioch, the great church of Antioch. Only Ephesus could come close to these last great churches because the other six cities in these seven churches were very small. They were very small cities of Asia Minor. So why are the epistles directed and addressing these particular seven churches and not the other bigger and more seasoned churches? Simply because the number seven is allegorical or schematic. And it expresses variety along with fullness. In other words, it represents a complete picture of the entire church from back then up until the end of the age. And the fullness of the church is represented by these seven representative types of these churches. In other words, these seven churches are seven different folds seven different realities of the one holy catholic and apostolic church so we have here two interwined instances the one is that the 
that each epistle is sent to each specific historical church. Again, historical church, we need to stress this, which refers to a specific instance for each church. For example, when he says, you are neither cold nor hot, you are lukewarm, you have forsaken your first love, remember the height from which you have fallen. This is a specific flaw or weakness of the church A or B. Therefore, these epistles at their first level have a historical character. They are exactly that. They aim to cure the flaws of those individual churches 2,000 years ago. But at the second plane, these elements aim to serve as a warning for the entire church all through the ages. So we have here two interwined dimensions, the historical one, which is limited to the topographies of the seven city churches. And then we have the other dimension, which refers to the entire history of the church or the church through the ages. So when we read what Christ says for the church of the Ephesians or that of the Philadelphians, this means that all these points or elements that are brought up exist in the Catholic Church of Christ. I will mention this one more time because we are Greeks. And as Greeks or Greek nationals, we need to pay attention to this. This is significant. These seven churches, these cities where the seven churches were in, they were Greek cities. The entire Asia Minor was Greek. And these are historical churches and historical epistles with a historical base. I will say it again and again when the time comes, but I will mention it now. When Christ says, I will remove your lampstand, every church is represented by a lampstand or a candle stand, one candle. So I will remove your lampstand means I will move you around. He took all these seven churches and moved them and none of these seven historical churches exist today in Asia Minor. Not one, not Ephesus, not Smyrna, not a single one. The lampstands were removed permanently in 1922, permanently, during the infamous Asia Minor destruction and expulsion of the Greek populace. This is such a significant historical event that we will touch upon time after time again as we are studying these chapters and these churches. St. Andrew of Caesarea says, with the number seven of the churches, what is meant is the fullness of the church. Those the seven days of the week are a symbol of the creation of the world or our life, the number seven or the seven churches shows the fullness of the church. So I will ask you to please pay close attention to this point because whatever we analyze in these seven great epistles of these churches is not limited to those seven historical churches, but they will always refer to the entire church which will exist always until the end of time. 
grace and peace to you is the Christian greeting of strong, vivid liturgical character. This greeting of St. John is a short version of the greeting of St. Paul in his second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. And here again we see the three persons of the Holy Trinity. Our God is triune. So the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Amen. John does not borrow this type of reading from Paul or vice versa. It seems that it always existed in the church and it had a liturgical dimension. So the apostles John and Paul and Peter and Jude used this reading which was in the church. This form exists until today in our divine liturgy, and that's in the beginning of the prayers of the Holy Anaphora, when a priest comes out to bless the worshipers. Since the grace of God is a favorable consequence springing from the merciful death of Christ, then peace come from God the Father and from the one who was and who is and who is coming, as we will see in the verses to follow, and from the Holy Spirit. And John will say the seven spirits, and that's in the verses that will follow, and from the Son. All this turns this greeting into a liturgical confession of faith, or a symbol of faith. In the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip the deacon said to him, if you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, nothing will keep you from being baptized. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And this is nothing more but a confession of faith. Later, due to a number of heresies in the church, the creed of faith will become much more detailed. The known creed of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, which we use today, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, and so on. But here, from this greeting, we see that we have a most archaic element of confession of faith. Confession of faith in the liturgical space. We affirm our faith. We confess our faith in the liturgical space in church in order to celebrate the divine liturgy before Holy Communion. We must confess our true faith. So this greeting of St. John the Evangelist is of vivid liturgical character. But our time is up, and God willing, we will continue next Sunday.